Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a double homicide that occurred in 2016. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. The brothers were in the jungle last week to settle a $500 drug debt owed to their mother. You're saying it out loud, it makes no sense at all. The suspect description that came out immediately was a Samoan male named Juice. I'm saying, what? That cannot be because Juice is in federal way. The last time I found out, he was in federal way. You and I couldn't have gone into this encampment and expected the defendants to talk to us. Detective Cooper couldn't have gone into this encampment and expected the defendants to talk to him. An undercover officer couldn't have gone in there and had this conversation with the defendants. This is episode three, Too Big to Fail. I'm your host, David Payne. Two people were killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless Deadly shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt. Three teenage brothers were arrested and these... 17, 16, and the youngest, just 13 years old. There are many entry points into the jungle. The one we like the most starts in Jose Rizal Park, in the shadow of a hospital that once served quite inexplicably as Amazon's headquarters before they moved downtown. You start at the top and walk down a dirt path that leads both to a bike trail and an off-leash park for dogs. If you're unlucky in your timing, you can find yourself on this path, trapped face-to-face with people you'd rather not be. At the end of the first trail, you have choices to make, none of them good. All of them involve climbing through holes in the fence and advancing into a tent city that abuts the freeway. The first thing you need to know about the jungle, if you're trying to capture audio, it's loud. Sounds like a jungle. It does, sounds like a drum circle, doesn't it? The second thing you need to know is not to sneak up on people from behind or surprise them. Chris, you here? Hey, Chris. Look at you with the roof on. Your place looks amazing. But we were always surprised at what we found in and learned about the people of the jungle. We had been meeting up with its occupants at various locations, both in and out of the jungle. One of them was a man named Chris. Chris is a millennial outdoorsman from Idaho with ADHD, who's married to a somewhat older half-Mormon, half-Honduran pacifist named Jay, who delivers Uber Eats from his mountain bike. Principles still follow. He's kind of raised Mormon. No. I was raised Mormon. In the LDS Church? Yeah. My my father came from from Minnesota to be closer to the church. My mother met my father in a singles ward in Provo, and they, yeah... Did you grow up in the church and, and go all the way through that? Yeah, I never made it to the part of the, the missionaries. My parents weren't really the kind of parents who were like, 
go do, go, you know, they were like, go to school, but they weren't like, what did you do in school? What did you learn how to, you know, they weren't that kind. With a laugh that is quick, <laughs> Jay's husband, Chris, tells us what life is like living in a hut in the jungle. This is amazing. How waterproof is this in here? Pretty good. Not at the moment, though, because I, I had a tarp on this end. I have another projector screen I'm going to put up there instead, and I pull it off so it'll get good and dry before I put that down. But yeah, it's pretty good. You see, like the fact pattern being laid out by prosecutors in the Tafalusia case, the jungle wasn't always what it seemed. In fact, prosecutors and the police's perspective of the jungle was hardened and shaped principally by the crimes they had seen. Here's the DA, Dan Satterberg, describing his version of the jungle. The jungle has been a homeless encampment for decades. It's a place, and it remains a place, a violent and lawless place, where drug dealing, sexual assaults, robbery, and murders have occurred over the years. You know, hundreds of thousands of people drive by the jungle every day on I-5. The jungle is filled with trash, litter, with propane tanks that are dangerous, with open pits of human waste, and with thousands of used hypodermic needles. But Chris and his husband, Jay, are living proof of the ambiguities of the jungle. They have carved out a comfortable, if somewhat loud, niche on the side of the freeway. With pilfered plywood and purloined tarps, Chris has built a house in these woods, which sits about 50 yards from the off-ramp. He had a rock and a stick, and it was like, <laughs> hammered it, with the hammer it into the ground. And then he just started adding to that, and adding to that, and then he built another one. And if you spend enough time in the jungle, Sometimes you can trick yourself into believing there's an undiscovered culture there. I noticed the uh, Joan Didion book. I love Joan Didion. I, I loved that. Uh, I read a couple of her books. Yeah. The last one wrote essays. Yeah. It was a great book. It was a great book. Beautifully book. written. I love the way she writes. Yes. But whenever you begin to believe there's some sort of coveted sanity to life in the jungle, you are snapped back to reality. I was mugged about, about a year ago now, I was mugged in the park down there. And that was probably one of the most upsetting things. In the entire time of that year, was, that was probably the most upsetting thing. It, it struck me the most. For, for about a half an hour, it was just it was horrible. But um, I'm not worried about it. I mean, he's here, so, you know. Is there light, ambient light from the highway or what? There is. You know, he and I used to, the first thing here, we, I don't know what was with us. We sat in the dark. We sat in the dark. Our eyes were adjusting in the dark. That was weird. Why didn't we even get a light? We didn't even get a light. Yeah, we had a rash of like five, ten pounds. There's always this one chick that was addictively burning down her boyfriend's freaking house as he built. Her pastor was building constantly for like seven, eight months there, never freaking laying out to have a house completed for more than a week. <laughs> how do you protect your stuff out here? I mean, how does that even work? Two and a half feet of fucking cold steel. <laughs> Being in that Chris needs to carry a sword around to keep unwanted people away, though, is testament to the realities there. There have been countless homicides in the jungle over the years, and it's standard operating procedure to be armed if you live there. And thus, unlike homicides that happen in more civilized environs, you have to understand the context of the jungle murders before rendering judgment on what actually happened.
and bending down beside the glowing bars, murmur a little sadly how love fled and paced the mountains overhead. Lovely. Amid a crowd of stars. That's the best voice check you've got. That is. My <laughs> God. I, I feel almost unworthy. You can thank Mr. Yeats for that. Craig Thompson is a local writer and environmentalist who, in addition to being a pretty good minstrel, is something of an expert on the jungle. All right, let's talk about the jungle, your neighborhood. So what prompted you to get involved in the first place? In the winter of 2002-2003, a violent heroin gang took over what is called the jungle. They beat up most of the homeless people that they could find to get rid of witnesses and began wholesaling and retailing very large amounts of Asian heroin. They were getting this heroin. As a steward of Jose Rizal Park at the north end of the jungle, Thompson has spent years clearing brush in the forest, digging into its roots both literally and metaphorically. There had been a business agreement between the triads and the organized crime syndicates in North America to divide up the heroin trade. That business agreement broke down about a block away from my house. Thompson lives in the Beacon Hill neighborhood that abuts the east side of the jungle. And while he's optimistic about what the jungle could become, including a breeding ground for sustainable apple orchards, he's also seen the bounty it has yielded over the past 15 years. We began seeing very large numbers of interesting people coming through. We were having people in suits and ties coming up who were business people. There were people from the club scene coming in. There were people from all walks of life, as well as all ethnic backgrounds. It was a very diverse operation. Were they coming up into Jose Rizal Park, or where was this happening? They were coming up to Jose Rizal Park, as well as going into the woods itself further south. The The drug trade that has blossomed over the years is highly territorial and would form the unspoken backdrop for what really happened the night of the jungle murders. As a neighbor to the jungle, Craig has seen this international interplay up close. I have seen Vietnamese gangs. I've seen Cambodian drug runners who were employed by a Chinese-American drug lord in the area. I've seen a mid-level manager, I called Mr. Big, a fastidiously dressed Latino man who had a crew of Cubans. Craig definitely knew his history, and he had had his fair share of scrapes in the jungle, including once being jumped by a runner in one of the Vietnamese gangs. But his exposure to the inner workings of these drug operations was once removed. It wouldn't be until we met with Tracy Bauer, the 47-year-old victim of the jungle shooting and Fatna Wins number two, that we began to understand the scope and scale of the drug trade and the gangs that controlled it. And it was with Tracy that the historical context of the jungle melded with the reality of the shooting that landed us in a Kent, Washington courthouse some three years later. And give us a sense of, if you can, the volume that was being moved through there on a daily basis. I sold all the black and clear, and I had to sell at least 10 ounces of the black and the clear a day, at least. So roughly safe to say 5,000 a day? No, towards the end it was almost 30.
Now, the first thing I want to say to you about Tracy Bauer is not how much dope she was moving or with who or why. The first thing I want to say is my heart breaks for her. Every time we would meet, both Jody and I would come away emotionally devastated, as if by osmosis we had experienced one-tenth of the pain she had endured in her life. I need a drink. Oh, my God. So... Where to even begin? I think where we have to begin is that we have to be careful not to put her in any more danger. Yeah, let's talk about what she just shared. My God. You know, working in news, you hear all sorts of stories from all sorts of people. First of all, she's not even five feet tall. She's tiny. She's beautiful. And you can tell, had drugs and time not ravaged her. She was... Likely stunning. Oh my God, what a hard life. Tracy's life has indeed been hard. And before making any judgments about her resulting or causal choices, I want to share some of the circumstances that led to her living in a tent under I-5, slinging black and clear. I was born in Edmonds, Washington. I had four kids, two boys, two girls. I helped raise my sister's kids. She had 10 kids. So I took care of her 10 kids. A couple of my other sister's two kids. And a couple of their girlfriends and boyfriends. So a total of 18 kids before I came to Seattle. And how did your life go from, you know, you had the kids at the at the house with your husband and to where, kind of where we are now? And you know, I was on the res and... Um, you know, what happened is I, my mom passed away and my dad passed away just a few weeks apart. And then my husband died. And then I lost like three brothers. And then at the end of it, um, my son killed himself. And that was all in six weeks. This entire, all of these events yeah. in a matter of six weeks. Yeah. This six weeks of death would leave an indelible black cloud above Tracy's head and lead her down a very dark path. But the seeds of that cloud would be planted much earlier. We're gonna start slow. You'll tell us a little bit about you and your background. I grew up mainly around Edmonds and then uh, over in Suquamish, Paulsboro area, reservation, Tulalip. Which reservation was this? Suquamish. Do you have a Native American in your background? Or, yeah. Uh, so give me that. Partial, my dad. And so my your mom dad's? Was, my, my dad was, um, Part native, and, and then my dad, my mom was German and Italian, so. Give me a snapshot of what it looked like when you were growing up. As the baby, all together, there's 14 of us, so. You were the 14th of 14? Yeah. Wow. Baby, so. You had to take care of yourself, I'm guessing. Yeah. What'd your folks do? My dad was a main mechanic for Peninsula Truck Lines, and my mom worked in a bedroom and bathroom supply shop in, in Northgate Mall in Aurora Village. And um, my dad did some time in prison. What'd your dad go away for? Something his brother had done. He wouldn't tell on his brother. Was, um, so was he gone for a, wa- a long time? He was. Yeah, 25 years. Oh, wow. They came over to Seattle to kill a white guy. How would you describe your childhood if you could? I guess typical. I mean, I was in sports. 
and, you know, like to play with my friends. We did a lot of hunting and, and uh, fishing and, you know, crabbing and clam digging and oyster picking and wood cutting. And so we had a lot of chores. When you hear people's life stories, I'm always reminded how we only know what we know. For Tracy, it was a typical childhood, being the 14th of 14 children and the daughter of a convicted felon. And the hardship and loneliness she experienced bred both resilience and rebelliousness. She left home such as it was at 16 and got married briefly to her high school sweetheart when she graduated. We got married when I was 18, but we were divorced at age 20. It was a quick one. Yeah. It's funny, it's kind of crazy because I ended up divorcing him because I found out he was using Coke. Coke, are you kidding me? We don't do Coke, that's horrible, you know, horror, you know? <laughs> So that ended up biting me in the ass later on, didn't it? <laughs> Being in a tent in the jungle selling a lot of coke. He got a hold of me in the hospital on Facebook, too, and he was kind of like, what? Here <laughs> you left me for this little bit, and you've been doing yeah. how much? Yeah. The irony of that. It's good to hear Tracy laugh. Yeah. The tragic retelling of her life story is depressing, and you can't help but wonder about the choices and circumstances that led her to a tent in the jungle and a bullet in her back. It wasn't always that way. I first got a job working um, at Stevens Cardiology Group right after high school, right after graduation. And I, I worked for a group of 10 doctors, and I did all the billing, all the bookkeeping, all the accounts payables. I was only 18. They helped me go to college as well, so I did even more bookkeeping classes after that as cost analysis. A successful stint with the Heart Docs led Tracy to a 21-year career with the North Kitsap Fire Department, where she handled ambulance billings, fire permits, and even represented the unit at local high schools. And then assemblies, where you go into the assembly and teach the kids about helmet safety and seatbelt safety. And while Tracy would keep it together enough at work to build a career with the fire department, her personal life during that time period slowly unraveled. A second marriage, this one to a race car driver who drove for A.J. Foyt, gave her four kids, the pride of her life. But fast cars also exposed her to a fast lifestyle she wasn't ready for. He won that, and he went to Indy, and then he went to Bush, and then to NASCAR. And my guy actually drove the car Tony Stewart was driving back in Colorado Springs, and that's the first time he drove for A.J. Foyt. So we were in the winning circle on TNN on weekends, different state every weekend. Me and my, my, my second husband, we were starting to use some Coke, and um, we smoked a lot of weed, and then we started using some Coke. It was his 30th birthday. I got the Beatles suite at the Edgewater, and we were going to do what the Beatles did and got some Coke, and it just became an expensive habit. It was like $600 every day after that for a few years, three years. Wow. And we've all heard some version of this story somewhere before. The coke led to harder drugs and deeper addictions. A divorce from her second husband at age 38 put her in a complete spiral. I was doing the crystal after we got a divorce. It was cheaper. We started using the pain pills and I actually stayed off of coke and crystal for five years. So I was snorting pain pills. And first it was just the Vicodin and the Percocets. Is that, is that a different high or is it? It is. is it's it... it's kind of like when you do a line of Coke, you kind of get that feeling of snorting. But it, there's also no pain. 
that was the, kind of the bonus. So. The opioid crisis had claimed its next victim in 100-pound, twice-divorced mother of four, Tracy Bauer. And with it, the final tragedy that would propel Tracy Bauer into the jungle in search of the elusive coping mechanism she so desperately craved. So towards the end, when I remarried again, when I was uh, 38, when I remarried, that was, um, he was my last husband that, that passed away. And how did he pass away? He uh, overdosed. And uh, it was real, I was asleep. That night we got in an argument and I, I took a sleeping pill and I went to bed and um, he gotten up and w- went and did some black. And um, I found him when I woke up and he'd been gone already about seven hours. And he was at the foot of my bed. My kids, they didn't even know when they went to school. They were like, bye dad, you know. It was like an oleum floor, so it was cold. So they just figured he was sleeping on the floor, but he, he was gone when they went to school. Somebody Somewhere will return right after this break. Listeners to this podcast will surely make their own judgments about whether they would have made the same choices as Tracy to the tragic circumstances in her life. But I do know these two things. One, odds are, with the scope of the opioid crisis in this country, most of us know somebody who's fallen to drug addiction. And two, Tracy Bauer has paid a heavy price for her choices. But Tracy's story doesn't end in the death and despair of the jungle. That resilience she acquired as the youngest of 14, and those business skills she learned at the fire department, and those people skills she earned raising four children, well, they found a home in another avocation. As a COO of a major drug dealing operation in the jungle, You see, the prosecution may have believed the shooting in the jungle was a simple robbery story, but I knew it to be a different story, an American business story, a story that had its roots in the Vietnam War and branches in an indictment brought by a federal prosecutor who worked with Tom Wales and had the unabashedly American name of Vince Lombardi. A story that began when the teenagers on trial were 10 and 11 years old. The FBI is calling it the Tran and Vu Drug Trafficking Organization, and tonight it's been busted. A grand jury indicted 23 people, which set up today's sweeping arrests all over Seattle, which in turn shut down the organization's street sales of cocaine, crack, heroin, and meth. Come before Jeff Burnside was in federal court. In early 2015, the FBI and Department of Justice took down a major Vietnamese drug ring operating in Seattle and its surrounding suburbs. Seven simultaneously executed search warrants netted 19 of 23 defendants in the early morning hours of April 21st. Como senior investigative reporter Jeff Burnside was all over the story that day. The U.S. Attorney's Office says the violent drug trafficking case spread its tentacles from this parking lot in the International District to this Beacon Hill neighborhood on 19th, this homeless encampment area called the Jungle near I-5 and I-90, even the Dick's Drive-In parking lot on 45th. The indictment charges... Jeff's covered his fair share of crime stories in Seattle, and I ask him what he remembers about this one most. 
Yeah, I remember this story. And I what I remember first is that we started getting calls from citizens in various places around the area where they were reporting SWAT trucks and stormtroopers and a huge police presence in somewhat unusual places, in some cases residential neighborhoods. So talk about the amount of drugs, if you remember, that were recovered in this case, cash, weapons, and the like. Yeah, 10, 20, 30 pounds of uh, cocaine, which is probably crack cocaine, meth, heroin. It was a lot, and a lot of guns. And the fact that there was a lot of guns and, of course, cash suggests it's not just a drug ring like you might think in the suburbs. You could tell this was a violent group based on not only the weaponry that was confiscated, but in my view, the anger that I could see in the eyes of at least some of these defendants. I remember realizing how much work must have gone into this coordinated effort, this sweep of all these bad guys, and how they all pounced on them. The coordination and the legal work that went in in advance must have been just extraordinary. He was right. The amount of work was incredible. This was a investigation that had been running since at least 2011. And it was a really kind of a classic organized crime drug investigation. They were getting street-level drug dealers to sell to local vice detectives and just got them to flip on the next person up the chain until they had a big enough pile of evidence to start moving forward with some video surveillance and some wiretaps. And the wiretapping ended up... Levi Polkinen, our crime reporter friend from the Seattle P.I., picked up this story once it moved from the limelight of the arrest to the fluorescent lights of the federal courthouse. So uh, we have nine fingers, got Andy, got P, we got Uncle Jack, got Looney. We got Min, Lynn. We got somebody whose first name is Kimberly, whose AKA is Wynn. That's odd. Wasn't there a two-finger dong? And these guys were like, uh, you know, the Sopranos for the Vietnamese. Yeah, yeah. The Tony Soprano in this case was fittingly the headliner in the 23-person indictment, a 28-year-old Vietnamese man named Sun Tran. Describe him for us, just sort of his demeanor, what sort of, if you can. So this is shallow, but the thing I remember about him, the striking thing about him was his hair. He's got this long just kind of mane of hair, not to compare criminals to animals, but like it's this beautiful black ponytail situation going. He seemed contrite. He did not seem afraid. And who was Sun Tran? So Sun Tran's a Seattle guy. I think he was born here. His parents were refugees from uh, the war in Vietnam. And he'd been on the street since he was, I think it was since he was 14 or so. He's a rough guy. He'd managed to rise in the ranks in a drug trafficking organization. And I don't want to say he took it over because I don't think he took it from anybody. I think he built it. Built it, yeah. He was more or less a kingpin. That's how the feds described him, at least. You know, I can't claim to know that. But kingpins are nothing without trusted lieutenants. And Tran was a master at getting older, been around the block kind of guys to be his. 23 people got swept up in this case and indicted same day. What was interesting about the ages of some of these guys, Sun Tran is only 28. Yeah. 
His number two is 57. Some of these other guys, 36, 39, 48, 42, 54, 42 years of age. How did this guy run this ring? I think he was dynamic. I think he was merciless. I mean, there was testimony at trial that he tortured an informant. I mean, they were also effective. I mean, this was a drug organization that was making hundreds of thousands of dollars selling small quantities of drugs to people who were could be difficult to collect debt from if there was debt. He's the kind of guy that you could see pulling this off. I think he's also, in a lot of ways, he was a way for the, the organization to access the jungle because I don't know that a lot of the other old-timers on his co-defendant list had that access. But one of those older co-defendants on that list did indeed have that access. A man with the rhyming name of Black Long Trong. Do you guys know why Black Long is known as Black Long? No. It's he is a mixed race man. His father was a U.S. service member over during Vietnam. He eventually was able to come back to the United States. It's like a lot of these guys in that drug trafficking organization, they all have these like they fled Vietnam at the end of the war. It's mm-hmm. just like... Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. Because- Black Long Trong had a long career as a criminal before he connected with Sun Tran. His rap sheet included convictions for six prior felonies, many for drug offenses, burglary, and stolen property. The signature he left in the court's criminal dockets was of a junkie stuck in a cycle of low-level dealing and stealing to support an out-of-control habit. But Assistant United States Attorney Vince Lombardi prosecutor who ran the Tranvu investigation saw him otherwise. Here's what it says in the government's sentencing memorandum. Defendant Long Trong, a.k.a. Black Long, comes before the court for sentencing in his role in a violent drug trafficking conspiracy. The investigation showed that Trong controlled much of the drug trafficking in the jungle homeless encampment and received his drugs from lead defendant Son Tran. In that role, he was also implicated in violence occurring in the jungle connected to drug distribution activity. In support of his harsh sentencing recommendation after Black Long's guilty plea, Lombardi cites numerous intercepted phone calls that exemplified Long's ties to ringleader Son Tran, whose phone had been wiretapped. At approximately 6.09 p.m., Tran told one of his runners, San Win, to sell Black Long two eggs, referring to two ounces of crack cocaine. Tran then stated that he had told Black Long that two ounces would cost $11,500. Shortly thereafter, Tran told the runner that Black Long needs another black egg. Oh, yeah, I, I did love that Whatever the Vietnamese for egg is was the word they were using to describe their drugs. And yeah. It's like, how much sense would it make if you translate dime bag into Vietnamese either? On March 16, 2015, agents intercepted a call between San Tran and confidential witness number six. Tran said, he sells up to three eggs a day. That's freaking good. CW number six then asked, how can Black Long sell up to three eggs a day? That's a lot. Tran responded, he sells them to many other people for them to resell, black guys and all. I can envision agents and prosecutors poring over these intercepts, many of which were in Vietnamese, trying to make sense of these calls in the Tran DTO. I can assure you the picture they painted in court 
was not as clear as when they got into this case. In fact, in defense counsel's sentencing memorandum in the Black Long case, an alternative narrative is offered by attorney David Hammerstead. Mr. Trong has lived an unimaginably difficult life on the margins of two societies. As a child in Vietnam, he lived the life of extreme poverty and degradation, excluded from public education and ostracized by his society as the hated offspring of an African-American serviceman he never knew. For the past eight years, he has lived a life of misery as a homeless crack addict living in a tent in the homeless encampment known as the jungle. To support his own addiction, he acted as a redistributor for the San Tran DTO. When Congress eventually allowed children of American servicemen to immigrate to the U.S. in 1987, Black Long and his family left Vietnam and were resettled in America. Illiterate, unskilled, and unable to speak English, Black Long was too old to begin high school in Seattle, so he took a series of menial jobs. During this time, after being introduced to crack cocaine, he became quickly addicted. Mr. Trong was homeless off and on in the ensuing years, shuttling between the streets and his mother's apartment in the Yesler housing projects. Eventually, shamed by his inability to break free of his crack cocaine addiction and feeling he was a burden on his family, he moved to the homeless encampment known as the jungle. And that, of course, is where Black Long Trong met mother of four Tracy Bauer, a recently widowed former fire department employee, trying to self-medicate the loss of her parents, husband, brothers, and son in a six-week period. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. They were looking at me in my eye out uniform like I was a cop. Trung told detectives that he was with Pitka, Shorty, and White Boy in the tent on the morning of the shooting. After Marjorie was killed, Long and them all came over to my camp, my tent, and they never left. And you heard that despite these challenges, this group of people lived together as a family. They cared deeply for each other. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Feel it in the dark. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media in association with Warner Media. This podcast is created, written, and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Dayton Cole and Pat Kicklighter at Resonate Recordings. Editorial guidance provided by Mitch Gelman and legal services provided by Stuart Pearson. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. If you like this podcast, the best thing you can do to support us is to write a brief review on iTunes and share us on social media. You'd be surprised how these reviews can make or break an independent podcast like ours. Thank you for listening.